This morning I'm in Ezra chapter 8, verse 24 through 30. Ezra chapter 8, verses 24 through 30. Hear the Word of God. Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priest, Shabiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed unto them the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I even weighed unto their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver, and silver vessels, and a hundred talents, and of gold, a hundred talents, also twenty basins of gold, of a thousand drams, and two vessels of fine copper, precious as gold. And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord. The vessels are also, also are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering unto the Lord God of your fathers. Watch ye and keep them, until you weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites, and chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So took the priest and the Levites the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, we as your people who are called by your name, have come into your presence, into your house this morning. Lord, it is the desire of our hearts to hear your voice. Lord, we pray today that through the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word, through the ministry of your spirit, that we would indeed hear your voice. We would hear the very words from your breath. Father, we ask that you will take these words and you will mix them with faith within us. That you will use them to change us, to conform us, to make us more and more like Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, if you will remember, if we go back um, to verse 22, there's an astonishing thing that happens here, and I want you to see it. There is a supernatural power at work here. We talked about all the things that the Lord had given to Ezra and to the people all the ways in which he had increased their faith. He had bolstered their confidence. I want you to think about this for a minute because he is about to take really a a band of misfits. And he is about to load them down with silver and gold. And he is about to set them out on foot for a thousand miles. 
And he tells the king that he does not need his band of soldiers and horsemen. He does not need a military escort. He does not need worldly weapons at his disposal. No, see, the Lord has impressed upon Ezra. And really, we're going to see today upon all the people that it is of a truth that the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him. But His power, God's power, and His wrath is against all them that forsake Him. Ezra is a nobody. It is just a ragtag group of people that are with him. It is really just a handful, a couple thousand maybe. And yet Ezra has the confidence and the faith and the trust in the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, that He will protect them and He will sustain them against every enemy, against all trials, against all tribulations, against any ineptness that they have within themselves, that the Lord will provide for them everything. Amen? We see in our text here that Ezra separated out twelve of the priests and twelve of the Levites as well. The verse isn't super clear, but we know from earlier in verse 18 and 19 that Sherebiah and Hashabiah uh, and their brothers are, are listed as Levites. So they can't be priests. And then we see in verse 30 that it says that they took the priest and the Levite. So we have these two groups represented here. We have 12 chief and we have, I'm sorry, we have 12 priests and we have 12 Levites. And Ezra is believing that the Lord has given to him the right people for the right job. Amen? He has given some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why does He equip the body in this manner? Why does He give out these special gifts to the people? Ephesians tells us it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. See, these men were separated out, it says. These men were set apart for this particular work. The passage that I read before the service says that the Lord severs us. He cuts us out of the world and sets us aside for His purpose. 
And in doing that, we believe that He equips us for all that we need, right? Everything that He has called us to do, He has given us the grace, the mercy, maybe even the ability to pull it off. Ezra strong in his faith. Ezra living by the Word of God alone knows that he has to enlist other faithful men, right? That's actually what we are told. Ezra was going to take the Word of God and he was going to take it on his journey. He was going to make a deposit of it in Jerusalem. And along the way and when he got there, he was going to take God's Word and he was going to teach it to other men, whether they were priests or Levites or civil magistrates. He had been entrusted with this Word, and He was going to teach other men to do the same. We call this discipleship, right? Now we know that in 2 Timothy, we have language that is very similar to this. And I am sure that Ezra knew as well how this ended. See, because in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the, thing that thou, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's where we are at this point, right? Ezra says, look, I am going to take God's Word and I am going to use it to equip these other men who are then going to go out and they're going to equip other men. But that's not where the passage stops. It says, Thou therefore, because of this task that you've been given, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ezra is trusting in God's Word and he is teaching the men and the, and the, the people with him, the children of Israel, he is teaching them to trust in God's Word, to have confidence. He has seen the Lord move in many ways and provide unimaginable provision for this trip. He also knows that it's going to be hard. There's no promise in the Christian life of ease. There's promise of joy. There's promise of contentment. There's promise of comfort in the Lord. But we are warned that we will endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But then we get to this part where they are actually divvying up the silver and the gold in the vessels among the people. And we could get really hung up here in the details. Um, <laughs> but what, what it's telling us a couple things is one, the Lord has provided everything they need. 
and that is being distributed out into the body. You see that? The congregation is helping with this. The priest and the Levites have been set over. They're in charge of the silver and the gold and the vessels. We read in 2 Peter that according to God's divine power, He has given unto us all things right, that pertain to life and godliness. God has provided Ezra and his band with everything they need. Romans 8 says that um, He will freely give us all things. Now in this list, we have a couple things that we have to wrestle with. One, as I've mentioned in an earlier sermon, is when you're trying to figure out how much this is, the definition of a talent is all over the place. It depends whose talent we're talking about. There may even be different weights of talents for different metals. Silver may have one weight of talent, gold may have another, and copper another one, which adds to the confusion. So you can find, or I have found, anywhere from 50 pounds representing a talent to 110 pounds representing a talent. All this really tells us is they had a lot of stuff. Right? And if you even start doing the math on some of this, and you think about these 24 guys trying to carry this weight, it's hard for me to imagine that they were by themselves able to bear that burden. It's just too much. If we take the 75 pounds, which is kind of mid-range, and we say there's 100 talents of gold, somebody do the math for me, that's like 300 pounds a person, right? like $142 million in the gold price today. They need a big wallet for that, don't they? But the thing we have to remember is that this, this isn't all that they have. They also had wheat and wine and oil and salt. Remember? They had all that to take as well. And then they were told that along the way, if they happened to run out of anything, they had a letter in their hand that would tell all the civil magistrates along the way, give them whatever they need for their journey. God's people lacked nothing. But it's not just these physical resources. These are important. They have things that they're called to do with this. They're, they're supposed to go to Jerusalem and they're supposed to sacrifice. They're supposed to turn the silver and the gold into animals if they need be for the sacrifice. But God has provided more than that to them. See, the Lord has called them out. He has called them out by His Spirit. And they have heard. And they have obeyed. The Lord has called them to Himself. He has called them into action. He has called them to labor for the kingdom. 
They're no longer laboring for the good of the city where the Lord has placed them. He has called them out of that, and He has turned them towards Jerusalem with a heavy load. And in that movement of the Spirit, it goes beyond even God's people. In Ezra 1, we see that the Lord stirred up by the Spirit, Cyrus, the king of Persia, says that he, God's Spirit spoke with Cyrus' Spirit and motivated him to let the people go. We have something similar that happens to Artaxerxes. The Lord moves Artaxerxes to fund this expedition back to Jerusalem. We talked last week that the, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. Amen? But what I want you to see here is that when we read the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands, we always think of Nebuchadnezzar or Artaxerxes or maybe President Trump, or we think of somebody, some civil magistrate somewhere. But that may not be the real amazing task of the Lord moving the king's heart. Because all of us, you and I, we, we all want to be king. In our hearts, we are like our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, and we want to be king. And the Lord moves in His Spirit to come into our life to change our hearts. He actually takes our old heart out and puts in a new heart. And He gives us faith. And in that faith, in that believing of who God is, we see very clearly, as we talked about with Ezra and them praying and fasting, that we are not the king. That we are not in charge. We aren't calling the shots. There is a God in heaven and He has changed your heart. And He has called you into His service. And there is submission there. Now just a word of warning. In case there's someone who says, well, the Lord hasn't changed my heart, so I get to do what I want. It's not exactly how that works either, is it? Remember in the passage that I started with, it says that the Lord does good to those who serve Him. And His wrath is upon those who reject Him. Those who disobey Him. There is a truth that God's law breaks those who don't submit to it. There is one King. There is one Lord. There is one Sovereign. And you and I are not Him. 
The Lord gives us everything we need. He gave everything that the children of Israel needed to make this journey. He sent His Spirit. He gave them faith. His goodness to them led them to repentance. They fell on their faces before Him. They humbled themselves. They prayed and sought His face and submitted themselves to His will trusting that He would protect them on this long journey. He increased their faith by His faithfulness to His promises. These children of Israel, they knew the promises of the prophets. They knew there would come a day when God would release them from Babylon. And they had family members who had been released and were living in Jerusalem. And they were about to make that same trip. I sometimes think that you and I suffer from the same problem that the Israelites did though. They, they tended to think that they didn't have enough resources or that they had lacked something. Historically, the Israelites would, would leave their devoted service to God because something was amiss. Something was lacking, they thought. And then they would go and serve other gods looking for whatever it was that they didn't think they were getting. I ran into a story recently that I thought illustrated <laughs> how, how weak we can be as Christians. <clears throat> How many of you know who Kabu is? If I say it that way. A couple hands. Anybody know the name Samuel Morris? A couple of you know Samuel Morris? Oh, this is going to be a fresh story pretty much then. Alright, so, Samuel Morris. Samuel Morris was born sometime in the late 1800s. Around 1870-something. They're not quite sure. He was born in Liberia. Alright? They didn't keep good records. They didn't not only keep they didn't have records, there were no records. So somewhere around 1870 something, a young man named Kabu is born, and he is born a prince. His father is the king. Sounds really impressive. That means he was the head of this little bitty tribe, this little bitty town, this very small community. And they were poor. And like most other humans, um, they warred with their neighbors. Alright? So there was kind of this off and on struggle with their neighbors who didn't like them and they didn't like them very much and I don't remember the name of the tribe because it was hard to say anyway. So when Samuel Morris is not very big, I mean he's probably 10, 12, somewhere in there, not quite a man and yet not quite a boy, in one of these battles he gets captured. He gets captured by the other tribe. And the other tribe, they don't kill him. They hold him for ransom. Remember the part about being poor? So they want Kabu's village to support and pay this village for the release of Kabu. All right? And so this village actually starts doing that. They start providing goods and services and whatever they have to this village. But this village is saying it's not enough. And so to motivate them, they tie this young man up to a stake in the middle of town and they stop feeding him and they start beating him. 
And this goes on for a very long time. And when he is near death, he thinks he is at the end of his rope. You ready for this one? He's tied to the post, right? There's a light from heaven. Some described it as being like a lightning bolt. And it goes kapow on kaboo. And his chains or his bonds are broken. His captors are reeling back saying, what in the world is going on? And Kaboo very clearly hears a voice that says, Kaboo, run. Seems like good advice. So he does. And he runs, and he runs. And this young man who has not eaten, and this young man who is beaten to nearly death, outruns his captors. But they chase him away from his village. They go the opposite direction. And he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and they estimate that he runs for somewhere around three weeks through the jungle. So he gets to a town, it's the capital, and he runs into missionaries. And they take him in. And when they hear his story, they're like, Kaboo, we know who did this. Now in Kaboo's village, like in every village in the world, they have a story that is very much like our story. The God in Kaboo's village was named Joshua. It's very close. Not exactly, but when you read it, it looks like Joshua. He becomes very excited. He believes in the one true God. He thinks that who set him free. He begins to devour God's Word. Meaning he has to learn English. And so he learns, and he learns, and he learns, and he learns of the Holy Spirit, and he wants more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. And Kaboo, this Samuel Morris, he becomes a man of prayer. He prays for hours a day. Hours a day. He cannot survive without talking to, as he would say, his Father in heaven. Kaboo's father in heaven tells him through a series of events, Kaboo, there is a man who lives in the United States and you need to go learn from him. And Kaboo says, yes, sir. He walks to the edge of the land, you know, where the ocean is. He doesn't even understand what the ocean is. He doesn't understand when they try to explain to him, do you understand what 3,000 miles away across the water looks like? Nope. But my father will get me there because he has told me to go. I'll try to make this short. So of course, 
There's a boat, and the captain says no, and Kaboo prays, and the captain says no, and Kaboo prays, and the captain says, okay, and he puts him on the ship, and he converts about half of the crew, all right, including the captain who is ready to strike him. He's so angry with him, and Kaboo says some words to him, and like all the anger drains out, and he remembers uh, his life on a fire. Anyway, it's a long story. He converts the captain and half the crew. They get to New York City, and they love Kaboo. They love Samuel Morris. He's known as Samuel at this point. And they say, Samuel, what are, what are you going to do? You just can't like go off into New York City and find this guy. And he says, well, my father will show him to me. I will be able to find him, right? Because my father said I'm supposed to go talk to this guy. So they give him a decent set of clothes, and they send him on his way. He doesn't even get out of the, the harbor area. He's still on the pier, and there's a bum on the pier. And Samuel walks up to him and says, Hey, do you know... I don't remember the guy's name. What was the guy's name? Doesn't matter. Bob. Do you know Bob? And the guy says, Yeah. I do. He runs a mission about eight blocks from here. And so this guy takes him to the mission, right? Oh boy, this is a longer story than I thought it was going to be. So he gets him to the mission, and he's amazing. The Spirit is upon him. There's mass conversions at, at the mission. And the guy who runs the mission says, you know what? You need to go to school. You need to go to Taylor University. That's where I learned. It's in Indiana. So he goes. But it's right after the war between the states and economic times are hard and Taylor University is losing their buildings. They've got them all mortgaged to the hilt. They don't have any money. But they take on this kid from Africa who has no money and they give him free tuition in the school. And Caboose starts praying. Sorry, Samuel starts praying. The student body begins to convert in mass. There's a revival at Taylor University. What has God provided for this young man? He doesn't have an education. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't even have any good knowledge about how the world works. And yet God sends His Spirit, fills this young man with His Spirit, and he brings revival everywhere he goes. And so you know what happens to Samuel Morris? This is a really amazing story. So there's, there's mass conversion going on in the, uh, in the university. They're still struggling financially. And Samuel Morris dies. That's it. You're like, wait, what? What? That's it? That's the end of the story? How can that be the end of the story? So the professor at Taylor University writes of Samuel Morris's amazing life. Right? In a book. They sell 400,000 copies in the late 1800s and bring financial stability to Taylor University. Okay? So what's the point of that whole story? The whole point of that story is God has given you everything you need. 
Just like he gave Samuel Morris everything he needed, he has given you everything you need to accomplish what God has called you to do. Do you believe that? Mm, no. Didn't sound too convincing. Just like Ezra, just like Samuel Morris, God is giving us our marching orders. And He has told us to go. God provided His Word to Ezra and the people. God provides His Word to us. We are told that God's Word thoroughly furnishes us for everything that we've been called to do. We say, well, yeah, we, we have all the stuff and maybe we even have the knowledge, but my, my faith is is weak. And God says, no, 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 no. Believe My Word and it will increase your faith. You say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, God, you may not know this, but I'm a sinner. And He says, yeah, I know. But I've solved that problem for you too. Not only does God make a declaration of holiness for us, but He actually satisfies God's wrath on our behalf and makes us accepted in the Beloved. See, just like He tells them here in verse 28, you are holy unto the Lord. You have been set apart to do the Lord's work. The vessels are holy. The silver and gold are holy. The people who go with you are holy. The destination you're going to is holy. This is how this works. And you are those people. You are those people who have been called out. You have been chosen. You are that royal priesthood. You are that holy nation. You are that peculiar people that you should go forth and sing at the top of your lungs the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were not a people, and now you are a people. There was a group of captives in Babylon, and God pulled them out and He made them a people again. You, my friends, were born in Babylon, and God has called you out. And in the Psalms, He promises to be your sun and your shield. He will give you grace and glory. And there's no good thing that He will withhold from you as you walk uprightly in Him. If you obey My voice and keep My covenant, you will be a peculiar treasure. Peculiar treasure in earthen vessels like these priests and Levites all loaded down with gold and silver. Everything has been provided for you to accomplish what God wants you to do. He says, you are My people. The earth is Mine. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. Now go and speak to the children of Israel. You have two jobs at this point. If you are one of these priests... Or Levites. Do you see this in verse 29? There are two simple commands here. 
You are to take the things that have been distributed to you. You have been called to take the gifts that the Lord has graciously provided you, which is everything you need for this trip. And you are to watch and to keep. You are to watch and to keep. You don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out. This isn't brain surgery. This watch and keep, I want you to think like, um, um, like a soldier has to do guard duty at night while everybody else is sleeping. You have to stay awake, right? That's what this means. You have to stay awake. You're supposed to keep what has been entrusted to you. You're supposed to hang on to it. That's it. Stay awake. Stay awake. I know it's hard when the guy's preaching too long. Stay awake and hold on to what God has given you until you get to your destination. It's just that easy. Right? Believe God Trust Him to deliver you from here to there with the stuff. This is really the first command we get, isn't it? In, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are told to dress the garden and to keep it. Stay awake and hang on to it. And what did they do? They nodded off and they lost it. Hold fast. Hold fast in faith. Hold fast in the love for the Lord. Hold fast to the good things that He has committed to you. Trust that He ultimately will allow you to accomplish your task. This story is, is just like our life. God's people are called out and separated from the world. And He has set us on a dangerous and difficult journey. One that requires that we come out of captivity. That we walk away from the idols of our land. And we set our face to the promise, to that, to that heavenly Jerusalem. Elder Morris mentioned this earlier in Hebrews. That's where we're going by faith. We are on this journey he has committed treasures to us. Our task is to protect them. To hold on to what He has given to us. To hold on to the truth of His Word. To hold on to the faithful God who cares for His people 
Do I need to remind you that God in this story, God in our story, He is working with a people that have forsaken Him for generations. They have sin stacked up upon sin. They live in a land that has forsaken Jehovah. They have gone a-whoring after other gods. He put them in the big time out in Babylon and said, you want idol worshiping? We can do that. I'll shove it down your throat until you're sick of it. It is these people that He comes and in His grace and His mercy and His love provides everything they need to bring them back to Himself. Do you see that? There's only one difference I see between their story and our story. It's one of those things that's new in the New Testament. Daniel Ryken read about it earlier. Did you catch it? Ezra and his people were told, here are the talents. All you have to do is deliver them over here intact. We weighed them so you didn't shave off any of the silver and gold for yourself. Did you notice that? All you have to do is bring the same weight of gold to Jerusalem and you're good. But in Matthew, we are told that when we are given talents, when we are given gifts, when we are given provisions with whatever it is the Lord provides for us, that we are to be what? Faithfully fruitful. It is not good enough just to return the two talents that you received. No, He wants four. And in that, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Here's, here it is. Enter thou into the joy of of the Lord. Wow. Who wants to enter into the joy of the Lord? So what does it look like to be faithful with your talents? See, because I don't want to make this a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work harder kind of sermon because that's not what's going on here. The Lord has told us that if we abide in Him, right Elder Morris? He will make us fruitful. All we have to do is hang on. So in some ways, it is like Ezra and the priest and the Levites. Do you get that? Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. And hang on to what the Lord has given you. And the Word says that He will make us fruitful. But see, this leads us to the end of this passage. And the end of this passage puts us in a, in, a, in a precarious spot. Verse 30 says, So took the priests and the Levites the weight of silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our gods. One God. House of our God. 
So the children of Israel have all the stuff. They're all lined up. They've got their toes in the river of Ahava. They're looking across it and the 900-some miles of desert in front of them. This is where you and I are right now. Right? If you'll remember, Jeremiah told them that when you are carried away captive, that you are to build houses, and you're to dwell in them, and you're to plant gardens, and you're to eat the fruit of the gardens, and you're to take wives, and have sons, and have daughters, and marry off your kids, and pray for the peace of the city, that idolatrous city that you've been placed in, pray for them, so that peace will reign in that land while you are there. There's a group that's gone on before Ezra's group. And we have Ezra's group lined up with their toes in the water, ready to go. But they don't account for all the children of Israel, do they? Now see, some of them stayed behind. Some of them stayed in Babylon. Some of them had seen the Spirit worked. Some of them had tasted of the Lord and seen that He was good. And yet, they stayed in Babylon. The Lord had provided everything they needed. Everything they needed to gather, to cross the river, to make it through the desert, and to come to Jerusalem. And there were people that said, nope, I'm staying here. I love the things of this world more than I love God. I love myself more than I love God's Spirit. They wouldn't take that long walk of faith. They had comfortable jobs, nice houses. Look at this garden, isn't it great? God showed His faithfulness to His people through His Word, through His people, through tangible things that they could hold on to. And there were those who said no. What does that mean? It means that that king I talked about, that king that wants to rule over everything in the universe, that king that is in my heart and that king that is in your heart, wouldn't let them submit. Wouldn't let them submit themselves to the goodness of God. Instead, they chose bondage. And they chose tyranny. And they chose death. 
Maybe we have the same problem. Well, I talked about this covenantal complacency. Maybe we have taken those good things that the Lord has provided for us and we have consumed them upon our own lust and for our own comforts. Maybe you just don't see the need. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror or you look at God's people or you look at the culture around you and you say, you know, they're pretty much in line with what God says. They look close enough to Jesus to pass. I don't see a need here for me to leave the comforts of my couch. And apply God's Word to the situation. Maybe you and I love the things of the world. Just like those who stayed behind. And maybe right now you're saying, Evans, you're, you're being a little extreme here. It can't be the case. I mean, you see me here on Sunday, right? So let's, let's take a little litmus test here. What have you let keep you from loving your wife like Christ loves the church? Remember, He laid down His life. He died for her. What is it in the world that is so attractive that keeps you from doing that? What has kept you from submitting to your husband as unto the Lord? Jesus' bride is called to be completely content and satisfied in Him. What is it that we see out in the world? What is it you see out in the world that is more attractive than that? What has kept you from honoring your parents and obeying them? in the Lord? What has kept you from bringing up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? What is it in the evening that keeps you from family worship? What has kept you from laying down your life for your friends, loving your enemies, submitting to one another, bearing one another's burdens, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? What is it that you love more than that? What is it that keeps you comfortable in your home in Babylon? I can't answer that for you. I can't even ultimately answer for you what God is calling you to do specifically. He's calling you out to a specific job and a specific task, and He has given you everything you need to do it. He has called us as His people right here in this room to a specific task, and He has given us everything and everybody that we need to accomplish the task. 
And so here we stand, hopefully, with our toes in the water, ready to go. Or maybe we find ourselves back on the couch in Babylon. And you know what? God provides for that too, doesn't He? If we will humble ourselves, and if we pray, and if we fast, and if we seek His face, the Lord is good. He is gracious. And His goodness will lead us to repentance. And in that call, in that very clear call from God to you, you will be like the Levites here that we read about recently. And that call will come and you'll have a different answer this time. Right? Because they answered that second call. And they showed up and they got loaded down with silver and gold. See, God provides everything we need. The Word tells us if we confess our sins to Him, if we confess to Him that we have been the King of our universe, that we have said, you're not the boss of me, I'm in control, I can do what I want. If you confess that sin, the Word tells us He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins. Yeah, even that one. And He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can step away from Babylon and we can turn our face towards Jerusalem. We can turn our face towards the Lord. Knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we stand before Your Word today knowing that it is true. Lord, we see ourselves in the pages of Your Word. We see ourselves as those who have answered the call. We see ourselves as those who have stayed behind in Babylon. Lord, we know that we are sinful people. And we come to You day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and we confess those sins to You. We know that Your Word tells us that You are faithful and that You will forgive us our sins. And that You will use this process to make us more and more like Jesus. That You will make us holy. Father, we desire to be set apart, to be used in Your service, to labor in Your kingdom. 
Lord, if it only be a doorkeeper, let us be faithful in that task. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. Lord, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who's died for our sins, who has paid the penalty for our sins. And we are so thankful that His righteousness has been applied to us and that we stand before You as holy vessels. Holy enough that Your Spirit dwells within us. Lord, we pray that You will lead us into the joy that comes from knowing You and being close to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you would stand.